With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. You're listening to the Tennis.com podcast, and here's your host, Ed McGrogan. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Tennis.com podcast. I am Ed McGrogan talking with Pete Bodo after a little bit of a hiatus on the podcast, but we're back with a, a pretty interesting topic that, uh, Pete, you just wrote about today, and it's about today's Big Four comparing them with yesterday's Big Four, and, and just so... Everybody is on the same page of who yesterday's Big Four is. Ta-dum! Drum roll. Bjorn Borg, Jimmy Condors, John McEnroe, Yvonne Lindel. And, of course, you all know uh, the Big Four of today, Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, and Murray. And, you know, w- with that being, w- with that group being such a huge part of the sport, not just you know, men's tennis, just the whole um, perception of, of the game nowadays. It it was an interesting topic to raise, and um, you know I think many listeners, in particular maybe the younger set of listeners, are going to have sort of a natural bias inclination towards today's stars. You know they're watching them, and we always hear, for example, kind of how the game has always never been more physical. It's never been more deeper. Um, so I'd like to start off actually um, by asking, you know, what made Borg, Connors, Lendl, McEnroe, what made them so legendary, so accomplished in their own right, you know, through your research and just through watching them over the years? Well, I think in a sense it was the even, the really relatively even um, distribution there of percentage-wise, with the exception of Borg, uh, who won 40% of his Grand Slam 40% 40% of the Grand Slam events he played. Connors, McEnroe, Lendl are all sort of bunched there, pretty close together between 13 and 15%. Uh, the big difference in today's, of course, is that Andy Murray uh, has just one Grand Slam title, so he's kind of off the mark with the other guys. So he, in, in a sense, is the odd man out in a num- number of these statistics. And he does bring down the statistics on today's Big Four, but let's remember, as in all these statistical things, uh, the, these big four are not by any means done yet. So we'll, we'll see how, you know, I'm looking forward to the day when the young, or when the last of the, today's big four retires, we could really look at the comprehensive record for both. Right. So this is obviously a pretty stats heavy piece. You, you went back and looked at um, a lot of the playing records in particular at the grand slams of, of all eight of these players. Um, you know, what was uh, some of the more interesting or surprising stats that you came across, whether it's a comparison between the two camps or whether it's just about you know one player doing so well uh, relative to everybody else at a particular tournament or a series of tournaments? Well, Borg's 41% really stands out. The caveat there, of course, is that he retired you know, early. I think it was 26 when he, when, he, when he called it quit. So he didn't have a lot of losses at the back end. And now, so what, and what were the numbers? What, what, how did you arrive at that 41%? He, he won how many slams? 11 out of his 27 slams were wins. Right. Um, 
And so, you know, now these guys, you know, they're they're going to, and the other thing is I think some of these numbers are going to go down as guys get older and if they continue to play. In a sense for your stats, it's really good to quit early. So, right. so you know, there's, there's no so denying Borg, that. So Borg did it the best. <laughs> yeah, Borg quit at a good time. The group winning percentage is interesting. A group winning percentage for the old guys is 18%. In other words, they won 18% of the Grand Slam tournaments they played. The new guys are going along at a 23.3. I, I was going to say, I, I would figure that the the today's Big Four you know, would beat that 18% number. It just seems like it's hard to even remember tournaments that, you know, obviously we're incorporating every year they played, but it's been almost impenetrable to the big four today to, to win anything when they're entered in it. No, that's very true. Uh, you know, the other interesting stat that comes out in that, though, when you're talking about winning percentages because it gets into things like surface preference and proficiency and stuff is, and this is a very big stat, I think, in this whole thing, the old group missed 66 Grand Slam opportunities. Now, I'm counting Grand Slams they missed because they were injured, because they didn't chose not to play, etc. And whatever reason, once they, once they played a Grand Slam, from then on I looked at how many they missed. The old group missed a total of 66 Grand Slam tournaments, including 43 Australian Opens. We know that's because the Australian Open was down in everyone's estimation for a long time. Now, the new group, get this, they've missed so far six Grand Slam tournaments. Right. Ro- Roger Federer has missed none. I was going to say, Nadal's probably the most of, he probably accounts for... Six. He accounts for all six, okay. Well, I'm yeah. sorry, total missed is eight. I'm sorry, I, Andy Murray's missed two. Okay. So uh, so we have Nadal, you know, yes, lead, leading the new group but with yeah. just six misses. Yeah, so, I mean, that's certainly a thing to remember. I get, obviously remember, and I think, you know, a, a good example of those, this is just one example, is when Connors didn't, Decided not to play the French, played World Team Tennis. You know, he's that was in his Grand Slam year. He would have won, and and you you do wonder just kind of the accomplishments of these guys. They were already pretty. They're already tremendous statistics. You know, what could have been if the Australian Open, for example, was held in such regard as it is today? Well, I'll tell you what what might have happened okay. at the current group rate at the win percentage rate of eighteen point one percent. The missed tournaments. Really, would really would would have given them eleven point nine more titles, a dozen more titles. So now they would have leapt ahead of the current group. Right now, the new you know, group. What? Is, yeah, I would say do you, the tally of the old group and the new group, just of how many slams they've in total won. Right now, the the, the new group has thirty five total slams, even though they're long, far from finished. Yep. And the the old guys have 34. Now, if you factor in the missed opportunities in Australia and average it out on, based on their winning percentage, they would have they would have had 46. So they'd be ahead by nine, 46 to 35. But you know, if you know, if picks could fly, the point is the new group has already won more Grand Slam titles than the old group. Yeah, th- that leads me into a question I had coming into this when I was thinking about it. In that, the new Big Four has you know it has the all time men's singles Grand Slam title winner in Federer. It has Nadal, who is at double-digit titles. It has Djokovic, who is cl- climbing the list quickly and is passing a lot of the names that have been mentioned before. Um, you know, do, you think that, uh, do you think that this current group's accomplishments in some respects have already eclipsed what the old guard has accomplished? I mean, that the Grand Slam number you just said already is 
already giving one notch ahead to the new guys, and they're going to be playing for many, many more years. It suggests that look in the real world, that's going to be the case. But that's where you get into the asterisks of, you know, Australian Open didn't count that much. And it really wasn't the player's fault. It wasn't as if they just skipped it. You know, I mean, yeah, they skipped it. But the point is, you know, they all skipped it, and nobody wanted to play. It was at an inconvenient time at the end of the year rather than the beginning. It was on grass, uh, which, you know, could go either way. Of course, McEnroe would have probably won six titles here on grass. Right. But, um, but, you know, uh, be that as it may, you know, I think the surface diversity uh, today is, you know, speaks well for the current Carapa guys because you have, you know, really the only two surfaces are even remotely similar, Australia and the U.S. Open. But, you know, back then for a long period here, you had two and three Two and three slams on grass, so so that would even new guys uh, an advantage. Uh, the old guys an advantage. That's an interesting point because so many people point to today's services being quickly getting homogenized over the past ten years into sort of an all you know grass isn't as fast as it was before, clay isn't as slow as it was before, hard courts it's all kind of merging into one speed, if you will. But uh, that's. That's an interesting way to look at it. That um, well, know. and that makes a very good point because then which becomes more significant: the fact that they were all relatively, relatively slow compared to the old days, or you know, is it more significant that they had to really go from really drastically different surfaces? Yet, even though they went from drastically different surfaces, nobody has come close to Borg's, you know, triple double, uh, winning the French and right. Wimbledon back to back three years in a row. Yeah, I think. Yeah, before I kind of go on to thinking about Borg a little bit and some of what some of the numbers you've mentioned of Borg, I think. When a lot of people talk about the greatest player of all time, and this is not to say that he is, but he, I think people are sometimes surprised that he's mentioned in the conversation because his longevity just wasn't there. But his uh, his dominance when he did play, as these numbers are showing, is really um, kind of a, a good reminder of how uh, invincible for a time Borg was, and maybe gives a little um, you know remembrance to just how his really just authority on the services he played and when he chose to play. I mean, you know, you remember Borg, obviously, from back then. I mean, are we selling him short a little bit in the history books based on what you see here? Well, you know, we, we sort of are. But it just depends on whether you believe in a statistical approach. And if you believe in statistics such as Grand Slam success rate, fine. But then you get into the nuances, which is, you know, surfaces. Like Borg, you know, there's two, two Grand Slams Borg never won. Right. The U.S. Open in Australia. The U.S. Open, still nobody can figure out how he never won it, but he didn't. So that becomes, you know, so there you have a caveat there saying, yeah, he did all of his damage to the French Open in Wimbledon, yet, you know, the fact that he did it at those two, which were, at that point, certainly represented the, the both ends of the spectrum. They're really slow clay and a really fast grass, right. you know, really speaks highly for him. That's why it's really, really very, very hard to come up with any kind of a definitive, statistically-based comparison. But Borg stands out in, in another way, which is really in his uh, winning percentage of Grand Slam tournaments, meaning right. all matches. You know, he won 89.8% of all of his Grand Slam matches, and that includes the US, uh, not the Australians didn't play, but the U.S. Open. Because where, where he was a finalist many years. Exactly. Right. And, well, and a perpetual quarterfinalist, semifinalist, pretty much everywhere. He's 89.8%. I'm a little bit surprised. I was a little bit surprised to see that the second, guess who the number two man is in Grand Slam winning percentage, match by match. Well, since we chatted a little before, I I, I have to say oh, it's a, he it's, knows <laughs> it's a guy who uh, has has won a, a, just as many French Opens as Borg. But uh, it was amazing when you mentioned that Nadal was number two in this, and it, it's just a staggering amount of you know 
obviously Nadal and, and most of these guys, you know, run rampant through the early rounds of these grand slams. But to but to have a winning percentage of basically nine out of every ten matches that they win at the most elite tournaments, it's it's you know there's a reason they're called the big four both of these guys here so that's absolutely right yeah um let's maybe kind of go beyond the stats for a bit or maybe put it down for just a bit i just wanted to kind of compare the two two um camps in a different way here i mean you can make individual comparisons i think between the players that are part of these uh these quartets here i mean um is there anyone in the old group who you think is basically represented in the new group and vice versa. For example, you know, is Federer this generation's blank? Or is, you know, you can make a maybe a Murray and a Lendl comparison. They both took a while to win their, you know, their first slam and their breakthrough. Like, is there any comparisons that you see? Obviously, Borg and Nadal sort of comes to mind, too. Yeah, Borg and Nadal comes to mind. I think you're also looking at Roger Federer and, and Connors in terms of longevity. I mean, if you look at uh, finals... Uh, but here's an interesting detail when you compare those two. Uh, the the man who's played the most Grand Slam finals is, uh, you know, all time in, in the open era is Roger Federer with 24. Uh, Jimmy Connors is down tied with Andre Agassi at number f- uh, with 15 finals played. Mm-hmm. So that, that's a very big difference. I mean, that's that's you know nine more finals Roger has played. And what's striking about that is that. Uh, a lot of the old guys are represented. Not too many of the new guys are on this one yet. Nadal is tied with Borg at 16 finals played. Uh, but the number two man behind uh, behind Roger Federer is Ivan Lendl, who played 19 finals. And uh, that's a very good step because, you know, sure, a guy wins, but these guys beat up on each other. So, you know, really, you know, at the end of the day, you know, a Federer, Nadal, except except maybe at the French Open, you say, well, you know, it's kind of a pick em right. on, on almost any other surface that has been traditionally in, in, their, in, their, in their rivalry. Yeah. Um, I also wanted to, to tie back to one person you mentioned who you haven't – you mentioned just a time or so, which I think is kind of telling why I bring him up, is, is Murray, who to me is really still the outlier in all this. And, and, you know, that's principally because he only has that one Grand Slam title. But he is pretty much universally put within today's, um, you know, big four on the men's side. Um, but it, it does strike me as, as somewhat – generous in a way to to bring him into this conversation with seven other you know legends i think we can almost say um you know is is this something that even though murray hasn't um doesn't have the numbers or doesn't have all the titles that these guys do 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 you feel any reason that he shouldn't be included or this this goes back to a question that might not be able to be answered as well. Well, it's it's something to include him because, look, four of a kind is like a good fit mentally. You know, four aces is what you want in poker. Four kings. You don't want three. You want four. Right. So, I mean, there's an automatic impulse to put it in there. And in all honesty, I think the reason Murray is in there is not really because, you know, he bears comparison with these guys over the long term in terms of his record, but because he, uh, unlike the other rivals who have, have not done a job, has won. Uh, masters tournaments, uh, a significant number of masters tournaments, and has challenged a grand. It has slam done events. very. It has good records actually against you know a fair amount of his competition here. Well, I, which brings me to the ugliest stat actually is Andy Murray's one Grand Slam victory in twenty nine attempts for a three point four winning percentage, uh, which is the lowest among the eight by far. Right. The next lowest, oddly enough, is uh, Ivan Lendl with a thirteen point seven percentage, uh, even though he played many many finals, and that makes sense in terms of what we know about the Murray Lendl relationship. So, right. 
That that actually just is bringing me to my final question. Um, is you, Murray? You're right. Is the one who has kept up in stride as best as possible with Federer, Djokovic, Nadal in in the past five or six years. Um, pretty much everyone else has been shut out of this group. It's it's like I bring back that word. It's been impenetrable that today's big four have and. It seems like maybe one time out of a hundred, you know, somebody maybe makes their way in for, uh, you know, to have a big result at a slam. Del Potro comes to mind when he won the 2009 U.S. Open. You know, just thinking thinking back to the older group of the Big Four here, what were some of the the names in history that uh, we should remember as the players that actually broke through um, while? Connors, Borg, McEnroe, and Lundell were at the peaks of their careers. What are some of the names that we should remember as well? Well, it was hard because it, it's a tough one. I'm trying to think now off the top of my head here, but you've got, I guess, a Vlander who was, you know, sort of overlapped with those guys. You know, he played a lot of matches against McEnroe. He followed up, followed Borg winning the French Open and stuff. Um, there are other guys who are, you know, a Roscoe Tanner who was a Wimbledon finalist. Um, French Open, you had. Um, you have Nanak Noah, I suppose, getting you in have there. Noah, Noah, Noah would be would be in that discussion. You know, um, you know, there weren't that many. There just weren't that many guys, though. It was it was a little bit like today. You know, yeah. once these guys were really rolling, you look through the list of you know guys who went deep in Grand Slams all the time, and you know these guys keep popping up just like today. The Big Four does. Yeah. So what's, I guess, the conclusion that you uh, may want with this? What's, I guess, your big takeaway from this whole study that you did and seeing really a deeper look at the numbers from, you know, eight great players and two of the most dominant camps in men's tennis history? You know, what's really striking is their similarity. Now, I think today's group is going to end up with more Grand Slams total. But then, of course, you do have that big asterisk with the Australian Open. But look, I mean, you're already ahead by one and you can't, you know, you can't, Imagine somebody would have won X number of titles. The fact is, they're going to win a lot more titles. What's interesting, though, kind of, is that, and it, you know, tells you where the game has gone in terms of the demands on the game, but also the even the calendar in some ways is that the total number of, of titles. The uh, the old school guys uh, won a total of 344 singles titles. Uh, the new guys have so far in 193. It's really unlikely that, you know, that's yeah, less than that's, half. That's not going to be made up. It's that's not going to be made up. But then we had, you know, remember there were periods in that in that time early in that era, especially when they're competing tours, when Connors played on a USTA tour that was, you know, in opposition to WCT. And then WCT came back to life when the ATP tour was formed and Lendl cleaned up one time playing, playing both tours, basically, and did an Ironman stint and just made a ton of money, won a ton of matches and stuff. Uh, but what really stands out above all, ultimately, is the kind of the similarity with these guys. Even if one of the interesting stats to me is even if you assume that these old guys would have collected twelve more Grand Slams if they all played the Australian Open, you know their winning percentage would have ended up being twenty four point four percent compared to the current winning percentage of twenty three point three percent. And that, a, that again is in, you know that's statistically insignificant when you count things like perhaps my failure to do proper math. I did my best, you know, but mm-hmm. it's math, and you know, you figure it out. Uh, it's you know just so much. Even the winning percentages, the differences in winning percentages you've got among these guys, you've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven guys who are above eighty percent winning percentage between Borg at eighty nine point eight percent and Lendl and McEnroe at eighty one point five percent. You know, you you've got you've got a bunch of guys, uh, including Djokovic who's up there already at not three fifth on the all time list. 
Yeah. It's um it's quite a study. Take a look at uh it's head spinning. Head spinning, that's maybe a better way to put it. Um take a look at his piece today on this and uh we'll see a little more of what I mean. So Professor, thank you for uh today's lesson. It was a good one there. So um that's all for today's podcast. Um once again, Pete Bodo, Ed McGrogan, thanks for listening and tune back in next time here at tennis.com. You've been enjoying Tennis.com's weekly podcast. Thanks for listening. For all the latest news and events, head over to Tennis.com.